0: Hey guys, how are we doing? Wow. (laughs) Glad somebody is ready to listen to me. The rest of you, I'm going to need more from you, all right? Um, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit. And, uh, you know, typically my role kind of revolves more around um, behind-the-scenes type of things, Uh, just kind of making sure everything's going well on a Sunday, working with some of our volunteers, working with our city group leaders, planning stuff like the men's camp out. That's kind of my wheelhouse. Um, But here we are, all right? We're going to do this. We're going to go through the second half of James chapter 2. And I'm really excited about it. Um, I've really enjoyed spending time with James these last four weeks. I've been learning a lot about James. It's kind of cool that when you get into a book of the Bible like this, you start to kind of learn what that person was like. I love that James is just like a straight shooter. Like, you realize how many commands? He packs like over 100 commands into like five chapters. That's like three pages in my Bible. Uh, James is just to the point— when people, I'm kind of guessing that when, when he was in a crowd, that like when he talked, people listened. Like he was that kind of guy. Like he didn't always have something to say, but when he did, it was important. James is the kind of guy that I like to hang out with, I think. And um, I just realized my notes are way out of order here. Sorry about that. All right. So, you know, as I've been working through James this last week and, and really thinking about what he's talking about in these verses... Um, it's kind of reminded me of a reality uh, that I've experienced myself here in Denver and that I've also observed in other people. And I think you could probably relate to this um, pretty easily. Like most of us aren't from Denver, right? Like we moved here from somewhere else. We kind of moved here uh, for a lot of us for a lifestyle, right? Because I, I feel like I talk to people all the time um, and we moved to Denver before we even had jobs because we were just like, we just got to get to Denver. Like the rest of work and stuff, us we just, we just got to get to Denver. Like, I don't know if you know this, that's not normal, right? Like typically people find jobs and then they move to places. But in Denver, we seem to kind of have that backwards. And so we have these things, like usually they're hobbies, this, that kind of, uh, this kind of make up this lifestyle that we're after. And I, and I feel like the, the place that I see this most clearly a lot of times is you, 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 you guys aren't these type of people, I'm sure, but you know people like this, who, like, as soon as they moved to Denver, like, before they had a place to live, before they even had a job, uh, they took their Subaru over to the IRI and Platt Street. They maxed out their credit cards and all this high-end technical camping gear. And then what happened, right? Then they went camping. <laughs> and they realized that they like the idea of camping a whole lot more than they actually like camping like sleeping on the ground in the cold in an overpriced piece of fabric was not all it was cracked up to be. And so now they have a storage container or whatever it is filled with all of their camping gear that they never use. They like the idea of camping out more than they like camping. For some of us maybe it was working out, right? Like CrossFit, Orange Theory, yoga, Pilates, like take your pick. There's a thousand ways to stay fit in Denver, right? And so you paid your overpriced gym membership and then you started working out and you realized, "Man, I kind of like the idea of working out a whole lot more than I actually like" working out. The way this worked for my wife and I is when we moved to Denver, uh, we, we snowboarded quite a bit. And we did this for several years. We did the, uh, you know, we bought season passes, and we got up early on Saturday morning, and we sat in traffic all the way up to the mountain, and then we snowboarded for a couple hours and sat in traffic all the way down the mountain. And then after doing this for several years, my wife was kind of like, you know what, if I'm just really honest I think I like the idea of snowboarding a whole lot more than I actually like snowboarding. She's like, I get really, she gets really car sick. She's like, sitting in a car for hours on end on 70 is not fun. When we get there, I just freeze the entire day and I'm mad at you because you ditch me on every run and then we sit in traffic all the way down. He's like, this is not my ideal weekend. I think I just kind of thought this would be a little bit more fun than it actually is, right? And you guys can relate to that. There's something that you thought you were gonna really get into and really love and once you started doing it, you realize you like the idea of it a lot more than you actually like doing it. We do this with relationships. We do this with with jobs. And what James is going to show us here in this text, or, or rather he's going to warn us, is that that way of thinking is so common to us that it can quickly start to spill over into areas of our lives that are much more important than hobbies, than jobs, and even relationships. Because this way of thinking can actually spill over into the way that we relate to Jesus. And that's kind of the warning that James has for us this morning. And, and we're going to see that in this text. So let's, um, let's look down at verse 14. And I'm going to kind of work my way through these first several verses. I'm going to kind of give some commentary. There's a lot going on here. Um, turns out this is one of the most important, significant, and controversial sections of James. James. And they gave it to the guy that teaches like twice a year, all right? So I'm going to do my best with it, but I'm going to need you guys to be really understanding because there is so much here that we're not going to cover, all right? Because what I really want is I really want you to see the heart of James here. And so what James is doing here is he's making an argument, And you need to know the background of the argument. The background of the argument is basically what's the relationship between faith and works? Okay, so apparently people in this church were debating about what role faith and works played in our salvation. And this is kind of James' side of the argument. So let's start in verse 14. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, so he starts his argument uh, with this rhetorical question. We know it's rhetorical because of the way he phrases it. Like, what good is it? Well, obviously, no good, right? Like, it's no good uh, to say to someone who has a need, like, be warm and filled and do nothing about their need. That doesn't change anything for them. And so this is kind of an everyday situation that obviously was common here, but one we can relate to, right? If there's someone in our, in our city group that has a need and, and all we say to them is, like, I'll pray for you and we don't have no intention to pray for them, like, what good is that for them? That's just kind of sprinkling some religion Jargon um, over a need. So that kind of faith is dead. That's what James says. What do dead things do? It's not your question. Nothing, right? Dead things do nothing. That's what this kind of faith does. It's worthless, it's useless, it's dead. Then he continues, but someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. So then, he kind of continues with this argument by um, by inserting this hypothetical conversation, um, and and you, we do this sometimes when it and I, when it's like if we were too specific, everybody would know who we were talking about. So we kind of say, well, let's say that someone said this, right? That's kind of what James is doing. It's like this passive aggressive, like he doesn't want to be too specific because then the church would know who he's talking about. But apparently there's someone in the church that thinks this way. And this person is basically trying to make a distinction between faith and works, all right? They're trying to separate the two. And James obviously doesn't agree with that. James is saying like, sure, like how are you going to show me your faith? Are you going to take it out of your pocket and show it to me? He's like, I'll show you my faith. You're going to see it by my works. The works that I do are going to show you that this faith that is in me is real, that it's genuine, that it's sincere. Like how are you going to do that without works? All right, so that's kind of what he's arguing for here. Let's keep going. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? It's almost like he's kind of tired of this whole conversation. He's like, if I have to show you, fine. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, what is going on here? Right? I think uh, on the surface, it seems like James is contradicting everything that we know to be true about the gospel and our salvation. Right? Um, it seems that like he's advocating for a works-based salvation. And and we could easily spend the rest of our time just going through the language here and the nuances of what James is saying, but I think what's most important is for us to just understand what James is saying and what James is not saying, okay? So that's how I'm going to break this down. I'm going to tell you what James is not saying first. What James is not saying is he's not saying that works can save us, all right? James is not saying that works can save us. And what he's also not saying is that works must be added to our faith, all right, So our works cannot save us, and we don't need works to be added to our faith. That's what he's not saying. What he is saying is that faith alone saves us, but only the right kind of faith. And the right kind of faith is one that produces works. All right, So that's kind of the gist of what James is telling us. Martin Luther, one of the Reformers, I really love the way that he articulated this. He says, We are saved by faith alone, but not of faith that remains alone. We're saved by faith alone. He agrees with Paul there. Paul is another author that wrote a lot about our salvation in Romans and Ephesians and other places. So James is agreeing with Paul. We're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. It's important for us to have the right kind of faith. All right, so it's really important to be clear, and it's really important for us to understand that. But there's something else that James is after here. And that's where this warning comes in. James gives us a warning. And the warning is that you can love ideas about Jesus a whole lot more than you actually love Jesus. That's the nature of dead faith, all right? Dead faith is loving ideas about Jesus. Dead faith is dead because it rests in ideas, not in a life dependent upon and reflective of Jesus. Dead faith, or or, let me just kind of point you back to the text here. So in verse 19, uh, we already read this, but this is a really pivotal point in this passage. Uh, James says, you believe that God is one. He's talking to this kind of critic in this hypothetical conversation. You believe that God is one. Sorry, lost my place. Verse 19. All right, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, so what he's saying is like, you... You have all the right information, great. Like, you have great theology, sweet. Like, you have sound doctrine, right on. The demons do too. Like, that doesn't prove anything, right? Because we can have the right ideas, and we can love those ideas, and we can be super committed to those ideas, but miss Jesus entirely. And and, and that's the scary thing about this, um, and, and the dangerous thing about this is that we can, we can give ourselves the impression of union with Jesus and we can give ourselves the impression of, of being close to Jesus when in actuality we're missing him entirely because we can have all the right information, but information isn't enough. We can have an intellectual agreement with the major tenets of the Christian faith. But unless our lives have been brought into submission to Jesus, unless we've been transformed by Jesus, it means nothing. It's dead. It's useless. And the way that we know that this has taken place is that our works testify that that has taken place, that that has happened inside us. The proof that we love Jesus lies not in our ideas about Jesus, but in the way that we live. That's what James is warning us let me kind of illustrate this for you. Um, Let me just play this out uh, in in my relationship with my wife. Let's say that we were hanging out, you and I, and uh, I was going on and on and on about how awesome my wife is, how much I love her. And you were like, hey, so it sounds like you guys have a really great relationship. Um, Why don't you tell me a little bit about like what you guys do on dates? Like, what do you guys do for fun? And I was like, well, you know, it's a funny thing. We don't really do dates. It's just, yeah, it's just kind of not our thing. We don't go on dates. We don't, we don't really hang out all that much. Like, that kind of strike you as weird, but maybe you ask, like, what, why don't you tell me, like, what gifts she likes then? Like, what kind, of, what kind of things does she appreciate? What is she into? And I said, well, I don't really know, to be honest. Like, I never buy her anything. And he said, okay, well, why don't you just tell me what she's like then? Like, that's pretty easy. If you say you love her so much, you should be able to tell me a little bit about her. And I said, you know, I don't really know what she's like. Like we don't talk that much. We kind of just like mind our own business. We actually we don't live together either. Like what would you say? You say, bro, like you don't love your wife. Like you love the idea of loving your wife. Like you love ideas about your wife. I don't even know if you have a wife, right? (laughs) Like that's that's the same thinking that James is, the same logic that James is using here. The question that we're supposed to be asking ourselves in this moment is, do I actually love Jesus or do I just love ideas about Jesus? Like, is this thing real? Is it there? Does it exist? How do I know? See, if you say that you love Jesus, but your life is not marked by love for God and love for others, you're more in love with an idea than a person. And hey guys, I'm, if I'm dishonest, I'm guilty of this. Uh, I think we're, we're all guilty of this at some level. You know, we say that we agree that being committed to a church family is a priority for us. It's of utmost importance to us. But often our lives don't always look that way. Often we, we struggle to show up to see the group. We struggle to show up on Sundays. We struggle to, like, to sacrifice and give and serve and, and do all those things that we know we're supposed to do. It's a struggle, man. And, and if, if that's the case, then it might be true that we're more in love with an idea than a person. You know, we, we can agree that our marriages and our families should reflect uh, the character and nature of God and, and the goodness of what He's done, um, and that it should be a priority, but so often careers or success— or whatever it is, hobbies, can get in the way of that. And so if that's the case, and if that's the pattern, then we're more in love with an idea than we are a person. We, we can agree that pursuing holiness and purity matters, and that it, it's important to us. But if we're not setting up things in our lives to, to, to help us turn from sin and turn to Jesus and, and to put away those things that, that despise him, we're more in love with an idea than we are a person. And guys, like I said, like, when I thought about this this past week and I thought about my life, and if I were to answer this question in front of you, I think my answer would kind of be like, like if you were to ask me, like, do, you, do you love Jesus or you just love the idea of Jesus? It would kind of be like, it depends. Like, it depends on the day, if I'm just really honest. like There's times in my life um, that it's like, I'm not doing this. Like, if I look at my life and I look at the fruit of my life, like, you would not be able to connect the dots and say, like, yeah, that guy loves Jesus. And there's days where that is this is true of me. But I think the days where it's not are more often than I would like to admit. And so I think what this, what this drives within me is this kind of, like, this, this desire to perform and this desire to work harder and to do more and somehow convince God that, like, I'm worthy of him or that I deserve him or, or some twisted way of thinking. And I think for others of us, this can drive, if we're really honest about this question, it can drive us to, to guilt. It can drive us towards shame and despair and we can just want to give up, right? And neither of those are the right responses. Neither of those are the responses that James wants for us. He's trying to get us to do more than just do more or give up. And that's why this first section here is serving as a warning. What does a warning do? A warning captures our attention. All right, warnings capture our attention. But James doesn't stop here because ultimately, that's not what James wants. He wants more than just our attention, he wants our affection. A warning captures our attention, but grace captures our affections. And that's where James goes next. And and you know how this works, right? Like if you work with kids, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a parent, like how do you warn kids, right? When I was in school, it was all about recess. I lived for recess. I don't know if they still do recess, they should. Um, I was all about recess. So if, if my teacher said, all right, if you guys don't shape up, like you're getting five minutes less recess, I did whatever they wanted, right? Now, if my teacher wanted to get my affection, she just had to say, hey, five minutes more recess, and I loved her to death, right? That Obviously, we're dealing with something much more significant than recess here, but that's kind of what the idea that I want you to understand and that James is kind of employing here is that a warning gets our attention. It captures our attention, but grace captures our affection. Here's how he does it. Let's look back down at verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The way James does this is he gives us this example of Rahab. I think this is so cool. So cool, I gave her her own point. Like, he already gave us the example of Abraham, right? And that one's kind of like a given. Like, Abraham's kind of the ace in the hole. Like, if you want to illustrate something in the Bible, like, just throw Abraham out there. I mean, he's like the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Like, he's the guy that God promised, like, the Messiah would come through his descendants. Like, Abraham's a big deal. Like, he's the logical choice if you're trying to kind of illustrate saving faith like James is doing here. So he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He gives us Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. What in the world do a patriarch and a prostitute have in common, right? And that's James' point. is It wasn't their performance. It wasn't their track record. It was their faith in someone greater than, something outside them, the one who was sufficient, okay? The, the thing, or I guess the contrast between Abraham and Rahab, it shows us that saving faith is not only required by God, but it's provided by God. What God requires, he provides. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel here in James. What God requires, the saving faith he also provides. Where do we see this? We see this specifically in Ephesians 2.8. I got it up on the screen so you don't have to turn there. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith in and of itself is a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. Who does God give this gift to? James is going to tell us a little bit later in chapter 4. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God gives faith to those who are humble. Those who recognize their inability to save themselves. Those who recognize their desperate need for Jesus. That's who God gives this gift to. And when we recognize our desperation and when we recognize how unable we are to work our way to him or to offer him anything that is worthwhile and we receive that free gift, that leads us to affection for Jesus. That leads us to treasuring Jesus. And affection for Jesus is what leads us to works of love toward God and other people, which are the works that James is talking about here. Those works are not the fruit, or sorry, those those works are not the root, they're the fruit. The root is this affection for Jesus. The fruit is the love towards God and the love towards other people that testify to the fact that this this faith and this love and this union with Christ already exists. The way that uh, John Piper says this, John Piper is a pastor and a theologian. He says, Christianity, what Jesus demands from us, is not most deeply and most fundamentally decisions of the will. That comes later. Deeply and most fundamentally, Christianity is a new birth, a deep, profound transformation of what we treasure, what we love. And if that deepest, fullest love isn't for Jesus, then we are not worthy of Jesus. And being worthy of Jesus doesn't mean deserving Jesus. It means being suitable as a redeemed, forgiven person to be in his presence. When he is your supreme treasure, you belong with him. Guys, this is such good news. Whether you're like me and your tendency when you don't measure up is just to try harder and perform more, or your tendency is just to feel guilty and feel shame and wanna give up, the message that james has for us here is it's not about either of those things it's about our affections for jesus and what we need to recognize kind of in response to what james is telling us here the first thing we need to recognize is our need for jesus all of us no matter if you've been walking for jesus with jesus for years or if you haven't started walking with Jesus yet, we all desperately need Jesus. You know, one thing that uh, you've probably heard us say from time to time here at the summit is that it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there, all right? So the requirement for coming to Jesus is not perfection. The requirement for coming to Jesus um, is humility. That's what he requires, humility and progress. It's not okay to stay there. And we don't, we don't get progress by just kind of trying harder or, or adding more works or uh, mustering up willpower. We, we see pro- progress in our lives and in our obedience when we see our affections for Jesus grow. That's the way that this is designed to work. And secondly, I think for those of us that maybe, maybe today you, you've realized for the first time that you've never accepted or received this gift of saving faith that James is talking about. Maybe, maybe you've recognized that you thought you had, but you hadn't. I think the, the action step for you is to, one, repent from your sin and receive this gift that James is talking about for the first time. To receive Jesus Not just as an idea, but to receive him as Lord and of Savior. Do you see the difference between those things? The difference is like we can all agree about who Jesus is and what he's done. We can agree, even along with the demons, this kind of intellectual understanding of of who Jesus is. But until we submit our lives to his lordship, not until then have we entered into a relationship with him where we've humbled ourselves and we've declared that we need him. And so I'm going to give some more instructions to you if you're kind of in that category. And today you want to do this for the first time. Today you want to receive saving faith for the first time. And the last kind of action step for us here, for all of us, is to revel in who Jesus is and what he has done. When we revel in who Jesus is and we revel in the work of the gospel, our affections for Jesus grows. Our desires and our longings are transformed. And this isn't kind of a one-time thing that happens when we first start walking with Jesus. This is a daily thing. Daily, we must come before Jesus and the work that he's done for us in the gospel and revel that how could this be? How could this kind of grace be given so freely? That's The kind of thinking that drives these affections that we all need. See, affections for Jesus can't be manufactured. We can't make this stuff up. It can't be fabricated. It's an uncontrolled response to the grace that we've been shown in the gospel. And the more that we understand the gospel, the more that we're preaching the gospel to ourselves, the more that we're implementing things in our lives like reading scripture and being around God's people and prayer, the more that the Spirit of God massages this truth into our hearts and causes our hard to believe what our heads know so what does this what does this practically look like for us to do this uh, and i think i thought about this in a couple different categories i think personally for all of us that changes the way that we think about progress Um, in the Christian faith or progress in walking with Jesus. It becomes less about conformity. It becomes less about behavior modification. And it becomes being more about being more infatuated with the person and the work of Jesus. When we get those two things backwards, we get legalism, we get religion, we get a dead faith. But when we begin with affection and we continue with affection— these works that James is talking about can begin to follow. Our obedience for Jesus follows. So it changes the way that we think about our own progress in the Christian faith. But also, if you're, if you're a parent, this changes the way you think about parenting, right? Like your desire for your kids isn't behavior modification. It's not curbing um, their bad behaviors. It, it's not moral conformity. It's getting them to delight in who Jesus is. It's getting the desires and, the, and what they are satisfied in to become what God is satisfied in, and, and Him, and not other things. If you're a spouse, your desire for your spouse becomes to love someone more than you, right? It becomes for them to love Jesus more than you, because you know that's what's best for them, that's what's best for your marriage, that's what's best for... Your family is for your spouse to love and to delight and to desire Jesus above all else. So, how do we guard ourselves from loving ideas about Jesus more than we love Jesus? Because we can all fall into this tendency without even knowing it. The way that we guard against this is we don't try to do more, we don't try harder, we delight in what Jesus has already done. That's the gospel. And um, as I have been reflecting and, and praying through this this week, um, I kind of took the time to just write out a summary of everything we just talked about. And I'm, just, I'm much more of an internal processor, and I can write things much more articulate than I can say them. Um, and so I wanted to share with you this meditation from my journal on James 2, kind of in closing Kind of what I, what I wrote is the Christian life is a battle to daily delight in Jesus above all other delights, to treasure him above all other treasures, and to love him above all other loves. The battle is not won by the power of the will, but by the power of the Spirit causing our hearts to fully believe what our heads can only understand. And we pray that for us. <clears throat> Father, I'm so grateful for this book this small but powerful book, and the truths that are just packed in it. But over and above all of these commands and all of these requirements is is this reality that what you want from us is not just our attention. What you want from us is not our compliance. What you want from us is our affection. And so I pray today that we would be able to know the difference And that when we feel ourselves or we identify within ourselves this tendency to love ideas about Jesus more than we love Jesus, that we would be quick to repent of that and we'd be quick to turn to you in faith.